Welcome to the CRE with CBC Worldwide podcast. I'm Dan Spiegel, Senior Vice President and Managing Director of Cobalt Banker Commercial. Our podcast explores topics important to the commercial real estate industry. And today we have a great guest, Sean Hare of Trinity Investments. Sean is a managing partner, president, and CEO of Trinity. He's been with the firm for over 25 years and is responsible not only for the sourcing of new hotel investment opportunities, but also overseeing his in-house asset management team, which keeps these hotels on the cutting edge of changing consumer preferences. Trinity Investments is a roughly $4 billion private equity firm offering fully integrated real estate investment, asset management, and development expertise specifically for value-add hotel and resort assets. Since it was founded in 1996, the firm has invested more than $6 billion in hotels and resorts and since 2021 has been the most active acquirer of full-service hotels and resorts in the U.S. Their portfolio includes over 115 well-known properties like the Diplomat Beach Resort in Florida, the Four Seasons Resort in Las Colinas, Texas, and the W Hollywood in Los Angeles. I really look forward to this conversation, and Sean, welcome. Uh, great to have you on today. Thank you, Dan. Good to be here. Sean, why don't we start by just sharing a little bit about your background and tell us how you got started in hotel real estate or maybe real estate and then hotel real estate, whatever the order may be. Sure. I had a few uh, misstarts as a, as, a, as a kid graduating from high school and uh, ultimately ended up at hotel school in Switzerland. I was always fascinated by the hotel industry. It's, sort of the, it's the crossroads of, of business, people, and travel. And then from there, without knowing much, I heard that there was a hotel school at a university called Cornell. I'd never heard of Cornell. I applied and, of course, got rejected and ended up at UNLV for a semester, which was a phenomenal experience, and then reapplied and graduated from Cornell. When I graduated, um, I went to work for a company called HVS International, which specializes in the hospitality industry, doing appraisals, consulting work, etc., and then from there was hired by Trinity. So I've only had two jobs in my life and mm -hmm. fortunately found the right spot and have been at Trinity for over 25 years now. Excellent. Well, that, uh, I guess it's all things that happen for a purpose. You didn't get into Cornell, but you had a good path none, nonetheless. So all good. Uh, and you're in a very interesting field today. You know, the, the commercial real estate industry has had a lot of ups and downs over the past, I guess to say, several years during the pandemic and, and to the day. Um, right now, office assets are all the top. Um, and really the hotel industry is really, as I understand it, one of the darlings. So why don't you go, let's go back a couple of years and why don't you tell us how the pandemic affected your business and perhaps, you know, what have the three years looked like since then? So the pandemic was really difficult when it started. And I'll actually go back a few years before that. When we lived through the 2008 financial crisis, I learned a lot going through that. We had a small team. There were only eight of us. And we didn't have the ability to be offensive and defensive at the same time. So we spent the entire global financial crisis protecting the assets we had. We didn't have a team to go out and take, you know, to, to, to take the opportunity for one of the best buying experiences in my career. So going into when we rebuilt Trinity in the mid like 2015, 2016, we decided to, which is almost like the field of dreams, build a team and the capital will come. So going into the pandemic, we had 30 people. We, it was really difficult. We'd never had to close all of our hotels before, and we lived through that, closing them all. It's akin to trying to stop a super tanker or an aircraft carrier. 
none of these assets, you know, thousand rooms plus had ever been closed before. So we went through that. But what we learned was we not only had the team to take care of closing these assets, protecting them, but we also had enough of a team to go on the offensive. And we used COVID to really raise our first commingled um, opportunity fund. We raised the GP fund during COVID. We set out to raise about $300 million. We raised over $500 million through City Private Bank and some others. And then we went on the offensive buying. And, and as you mentioned in your op opening remarks, we've been one of the largest buyers of single asset hotels in the United States over the last couple of years. We've purchased over $2 billion worth of hotels. And the other thing that we learned during COVID was we were very vigilant going into it about only buying assets in certain markets, only certain types of assets, who our lenders were and who our partners were in each deal. And that proved well because we focus on the smile states of Florida, Texas, Arizona, California, Hawaii. We also focus on brand managed hotels, the so Hilton, Marriott, Hyatt. And then the third, third and final area of focus is the 300 rooms and larger and they're all destination hotels. So, of course, COVID, they all shut down. But what we saw happening in the summer of 21 is that suddenly the consumer said, I need to travel. So we had the revenge travel coming out of, out of uh, the summer of 21. And then a year later, we saw the group travelers starting to say, well, we want to get together again. So now these assets have really benefited from that confluence of both strong transient demand and strong group demand in those destination markets. Well, I think about the short period of time you just described. There's a lot that's transpired in that in, for both commercial real estate and specifically the hospitality industry. Am I correct that uh, that the hospitality industry or or, or property segment uh, is sort of a mixed bag right now? You're in the luxury resort end of the space, right? Uh, there's obviously the business, the convention hotels, the the economy hotels, and so forth. Uh, am I correct that your end of the hotels is sort of the, I don't know if I want to call it the darling, but sort of a uh, attractive investment class at the moment? Yeah, it, it's, it's almost bipolar. And I think it's the same with most real estate asset classes today. Even with hotels, if you're in the middle part of the United States with a generic corporate-oriented hotel, you're struggling. If uh -huh. you're in the smile states in a destination-type hotel, you're flourishing right now. We try and stay out of the true luxury because you know, that's not really our thing. We're in, I'd say, the four to four and a half star space. So, you know, definitely Ritz-Carlton's, definitely Westons, definitely JW Marriott's, et cetera. We, we like that space a lot. What's also interesting going into the pandemic was that hotels were always sort of like the, the stepchild, right, within real estate. It's truly an operating business, so you, it requires excess, uh, sector expertise. But, you know, we've always had wider cap rates, interest rates a little bit higher, et cetera. But what we found with the debacle that's going on in the office space and somewhat in the retail space as well, is that, as you said, hotels have become more of the darling. And the reason for that is, when you think about it, we have to lease up on a nightly basis. So when you get into an inflationary environment, you know, we're able to reprice almost on a daily basis. And for the types of assets we own, we've been able to stay ahead of inflation, not just inflation on the good side, but also on the wage scale side. The, the, uh, the other side of it is going in with wider cap rates than the other asset classes, we're able to absorb higher interest rates. So if you're a retail or office buyer and you're trying to buy an asset at a 35 to 4% cap rate, and interest rates are 7 to 8%, you've got massive negative leverage right from the get-go. Uh -huh. But if you're a dumb hotel guy like me, 
and you're buying at a seven cap and your interest rate is at eight and you're um and you believe that you're buying a value-add asset you're going to work your way out of the, le the negative leverage quite quickly and we've demonstrated that we've with the two plus billion dollars of assets we've bought we've been able to get them financed we've been able to generate positive cash flow I mean, cash on cash returns etc that's great. I, I really love your comment about how hotels essentially lease by the night, right? They, they, as opposed to office space or industrial space that's on uh, three, five, or 10-year terms. You really lease by the night and can adjust your price accordingly, which uh, is super unique in the commercial real estate industry. Uh, you also uh, focus on one other topic that we've focused on at Cobalt Banker Commercial, which is the what you call the smile states, or I'll call them the sunbelt or warm weather states. Uh, we've said even even when the the market is tumultuous for commercial real estate, where the population goes is where the commercial real estate interest goes. So in other words, as people have moved uh, in some part to the southeast or Texas or Arizona or California, whatever it may be, uh, you see increased appetite for retail and other developments as well because where there's population. Now, your population travels uh, and people, as you mentioned, do uh, have have desire to have that revenge travel and uh, even in uh, even upscale their their stays, right? So they can really enjoy some, some uh, relaxation along from the work from anywhere type trend that's going on now. Um, you know, speaking of trends, uh, what are the what are what do you see as the top travel trends right now in the industry? I hate the term, but leisure has become a real thing—the blending of business and leisure. And what's happened post-COVID is most people, not all, but a lot of people, have the choice to work from home on Mondays and Fridays, or both. And so what's happened is that every weekend is now a three-day weekend. Every three-day weekend is now a four-day weekend. So we're seeing people sort of bleed into the weekends, having longer stays, et cetera. So we've had to think about our resources to how do we cater to this where people are, are working more from their rooms, et cetera. And we really go through that thought process in the design, making sure their workspaces, et cetera. Mm -hmm. The other part of it is, you know, you and I were fortunate during COVID that we had larger spaces to retreat to. A lot of the younger workforce was stuck in small apartments in cities on Zoom calls for 12 to 14 hours a day. So coming out of COVID, employee morale was at an all-time low. Plus, people are working from home more often. So companies have been forced to have more off-site meetings, and our types of hotels are the beneficiaries of that. So we've got as I mentioned earlier on, we have a, much, a lot of demand on the group side with these companies bringing people back together. And we also have a lot of demand on the leisure side with people who have longer weekends, et cetera. And then as we look at our resorts, you know, I've, I've said this a few times before, there's nothing worse than showing up at a convention or a group hotel and you feel like you're the only person who hasn't been invited to the party because you don't have a name tag on. So we've thought about, for example, in Orlando, we have 1,600 rooms at our Grand Lakes Resort between a Ritz-Carlton and a JW Marriott, a lot of meeting space. But we've created bespoke spaces for leisure travels as well. So there's the Ritz-Carlton Lounge. There's nothing worse in this world than eating in a hotel restaurant. So we've reimagined the restaurants that they have this independent flair and feel to them. We've added a water park. We've redefined cabanas, et cetera, around the pool. And the other advantage of that is, you know, people stay at these hotels for the full service experience. And so we've got great workout facilities, golf, meeting space, spa, gym, room service, restaurants, all of those things. And that's actually a great 
um, you know, antidote to Airbnb, which is a real threat to most of the hospitality industry. You don't get all of those services at an Airbnb, but you do at the types of resorts that we own. That's interesting. I, I do think that the the Airbnb trend, I won't want to make any predictions about it, but it's definitely run a course and it's, it's shifting as we speak. Um, as people start to see that a full service hotel has a lot of benefits that you just described that you can't get. You get that local experience supposedly in the Airbnb, but you also are not getting all the the amenity experiences and the spas and golf course and that sort of thing. So it's a, I suppose it's a trade-off depending on what kind of uh, either Belize type travel you're trying to do or vacation kind of travel you're trying to do. Um, what other changes? I mean, I think in our earlier discussion, you had said, you know, one thing about the pandemic is it gave you you the opportunity as a as an operator to do some improvements of the properties while they were less occupied, uh, which has put you in a good position now in today's market. So given the trends in travel that you were seeing back in 2020 and 21 and what you anticipated, what kind of changes did you make to your hotels and amenity spaces, restaurants, as you started to mention, spas and so forth, to make them more popular for today's clientele? So the assets that we owned going into COVID, we have a 770-room Western Resort in Maui. That was going through $120 million renovation. We have Grand Lakes that I mentioned in Orlando. That was going through $100 million plus renovation. And then we have Desert Ridge in Arizona, which is a thousand room resort that is going through a 60 to $80 million renovation. With them closed, we weren't displacing any business. So we accelerated the renovation work. A lot of the thoughts that we had for those or plans we had for those resorts were already underway before we even knew what COVID was but it just further enhanced what we wanted to do. And as I mentioned, you know, cabanas are on the pool. In these resorts, people are sometimes paying more for a cabana than they are for their hotel room, but that's you're spending more waking hours in the cabana than you are in your hotel room. And so we've got these beautiful cabanas that are fully equipped with minibars and TVs, etc. I mentioned the restaurants. We, uh, we brought in a concept in Orlando into the Ritz-Carlton called Knife and Spoon. It's a steakhouse with aged steaks. It now has a Michelin star. And so what we've done there is that we're not only targeting hotel guests, we're also targeting, you know, people who live in the neighborhood. And we're going to have the same plans for our thousand room diplomat in Hollywood, Florida, that we just purchased a few months ago. There's a bustling neighborhood and population in Hollywood and Fort Lauderdale that we hope to attract, you know, to, uh, you know, to, to, to that hotel. And then we're constantly thinking about the gym amenities, the spa. A big thing that my partners and I are into is pickleball. Now, we didn't just start in the last couple of years. We've been playing pickleball for the last 12 years. But in our Arizona resort, we have a whole pickleball complex. We have national championships there because we have a, a grand stadium where people can watch the game. So it's just being ahead of that. We're talking to a major gym operator about for our property in Greenwich, Connecticut. We own the Hyde Regency. And imagine with that neighborhood and, and, and that town or city of Greenwich having access to an Equinox on steroids type um, gym facility. So we're always thinking about those cutting edge trends that we can bring in. Yeah, that's, that's super interesting. Uh, I was thinking about, as you spoke, and you, I think you answered some of it, perhaps you can go a little bit deeper about, you know, it used to be hotels operated all their F&B themselves. They didn't like necessarily to rely on outside partners. Uh, but it sounds like you've embraced the idea of bringing in outside operators, is that right, to operate some of the restaurants so you can be 
thought of as a, as a restaurant destination in addition to being thought of as a, a resort or spa destination as well as leisure hotel. Yeah, you know, it, it, some of these hotels, you know, we can't have outside leases for the restaurant. So the mm-hmm. hotel still operates them, but we bring in these great chefs as consultants. So it's their concept, it's their menu, they train the team and the staff, and then the hotel executes. That works well. Our property in Miami is the East Hotel, which is operated by Swire. It's part of the Brickell City Center development. East is one of my favorite hotels in our system, but they have a bar on the rooftop called Sugar. Now, Sugar is only open in the evenings, and it does about $10 million in revenue a year. There's always a line to get in. I bet you half the people who go to Sugar don't even realize that it's at the top of a hotel. They just view it as a destination bar, you can see the, uh, the, the the cityscape of Miami, you're outdoors, uh-huh. and you're getting in an elevator to go up 30 plus floors. So that's what you want. You don't want this feeling that you're going into a hotel to go to a bar or to a restaurant or whatever. Having these outlets have their own personality is really important to us. Yeah, I see that trend here in Chicago as well. I know just downtown, a couple of hotels that have rooftop bars in the summer month take reservations, and it's hard to get a reservation. Or there's lines on the streets to go in the elevator to go up. So you're right, they may not really pay attention to the fact it's on top of a hotel, but it's a real destination and a real draw for more f- business in the future for that property. So that, that makes sense. Um, so I think what you're talking about, these are all what you perceive to be value-add opportunities in these properties. You acquired the properties and then you looked at their uh, operating current operating model and decided, hey, we could do uh, uh, some room renovations or we could do some restaurants or we could do spa changeovers, things like that. Am I correct? Those are the kind of value-add opportunities that you're uh, that Trinity's been looking for? Yeah, my, my late dad could, was never able to figure out what I really do for a living. And, uh, you know, and he grew up in a farming community in Ireland, and I try to relate it to his childhood. I said, it's like we go and buy calves or sick cows and sell cows and healthy, you know. So we're, we're always trying to find situations. So they have to be in great markets. You know, we work closely with Hilton Marriott Hyatt, so within those families of brands and, and Four Seasons as well. And then True Value Ed. And, you know, the way we've positioned Trinity is we are the operating partner of choice for large private equity firms. So when we partner with Oak Tree or Elliott or Sataris or any of these groups who have been phenomenal partners of ours over the years, our pitch to them is you don't need the sector-specific hospitality real estate experts in your shop. That's what we have with our 35 going to 40 people. And we live, breathe, sleep, eat hospitality. That's all we do. It's our job to be on the cutting edge of what the trends are. What, like, for example, our, our property in Cabo, the Hilton in Cabo, it's the number one Hilton resort in the world by customer satisfaction scores. And, you know, Cabo is a, a hot market, it's bustling, et cetera. But it's our job to always be thinking about how do we make these assets better? A lot of owners don't have the capital or the time or the, or the in-house expertise to handle these big renovation projects on their own. That's where, uh, that's where we step in, and it's, it's what we think about 24-7. Yeah, that's exciting. It's a lot of opportunity that you uh, – it's nice to have that vision and be able to go in and bring it and, and imagine having your partner see the success that you've had subsequently. Um, speaking of the partners and, and finance behind it, have you, given the current, uh, I guess, interest rate and, and banking issues that are out there, have you seen a change in the appetite of your financial partners to to invest in hotels? Or do you see a trend starting now that may impact the acquisition of hotel properties in the future? 
I believe that real estate in general is struggling just from a transaction perspective. And you obviously see that within your shop because at the end of the day, who's our customer? We have two customers. Of, of course, we have the people who stay in the hotels, but the two customers we have are our equity partners and our lenders. And that's who we need to cater to. And fortunately with us, for the types of assets we're buying, we've developed a track record, we've developed a reputation. And while you know we're negotiating to buy an asset in Tennessee right now, and before you'd run a, a debt process, you'd have 15 lenders show up. You know, now we've got three or four, but they're the three or four that we know will transact. We're busy getting ready to refinance one of our large resorts. Before you'd be have balance sheet lenders and SASB and whatever. With that size alone, you're only in the SASB CMBS world. So those are the changes we've seen. As I said earlier, we're able to absorb the higher interest rates, so that's not the hurdle. But it's it's all about, again, going through the pandemic, going through 08, we're vigilant about who our lender is. So we're scrutinizing them as much as they are us because we want to know when the world goes sideways that we've got somebody we can talk to and work with. And it's the same with our with our partners. So when we went through COVID, both our joint venture partners and our lenders behaved admirably and we all worked through the issues of COVID together and came out the other side only stronger and better. That's excellent. I suppose, you know, in, in, you're right, the volume of transactions in commercial real estate is definitely down this year compared to last, although last year was a super strong year for our business. Uh, at the same time, in any change of commercial real estate in the market conditions, there are there are, there are are winners and losers, right? There are, there are those that uh, perhaps turn the keys back on their assets, which inevitably just reprices the asset and it starts again a new life. Uh, and then there's those that have funds that can take advantage of value add and other opportunities that come to market. So it's it's somewhat unfortunate, but it's uh, anybody who involved in the real estate market, be it residential or commercial, knows it's a cyclical business, and it's just uh, one of those things you just have to live through. And and there will be another day. There will be another day for sure. Um, let's continue to talk a little bit about the industry. We talked about your segment, your type of hotel properties, but you know there is a lot of we talk today about uh, office properties, but not just office properties, because you have hotels that are in suburban office parks, you have hotels that are in downtown markets that really relied on the business traveler. Um, you know, so those I imagine will have some some challenges, either they'll have to reposition themselves, or they'll have to find a new light lease on life as a different type of asset. Um, any thoughts on as travel trends and business trends change, what's going to happen to those hospitality properties that are in the markets where there just isn't that type of demand that there used to be? It's so interesting, Dan. When you when you look at the regional malls and the struggles that they were going through, right, with all the online shopping and Amazon, et cetera, then you go through COVID and people are working from home more often. Some of these regional malls are flourishing again. So the only thing that's constant is change, right? But I agree with you with the suburban hotels or like the first generation select service hotels. They have great locations, but some of them have outlived their useful life, right? And the owners, there's not, there isn't the demand to, to justify putting the capital in. The brands are going to have to start getting tougher on meeting the brand standards. A lot of people got holidays during COVID, etc. So you've got this intersection. So I believe that a lot of people are going to be thinking about adaptive reuse and what does that look like? Do some of these hotels become senior living facilities, for example? 
do they get chopped up into um you know remote working you know, co- you know whatever it's called you know the, the, the sort of the we work concept Th- that type of adaptive reuse of course you've always got the zoning laws and things like that that you have uh-huh. to work through but i i'd imagine that a lot of that thought will be going on do some hotels get turned into multifamily you know th- those are the thoughts that i'm sure people are uh, are, are going through Right. And that's a a little bit of a follow-on to what we just talked about. Real estate market changes, demand changes, preferences change, and therefore assets have to be repositioned and and, and reused in some other other fashions. In the the hospitality or the hotel industry as a whole, uh, obviously we talked about the segment that's doing well, and and fortunately you're in that segment and and, and owner and, and asset manager in that segment. But are there other? Do you see any clouds on the horizons or questions for the hospitality or hotel industry as we look, let's say, two three years out, that maybe you don't uh, are starting to think about on your on your team? On the good news side, going through this high interest rate environment and inflation and all of that, I don't believe we're going to see a lot of new uh, supply. So that's good for those of us who have mm-hmm. assets and high barrier to uh, to entry markets. The one thing that does concern me is we've got to be careful that we don't outprice ourselves. We're seeing it at the high end. I mean, you go into some of these truly high end properties now, charging $3,000 a night is not unheard of. At some point, the consumer is going to get a nosebleed over that, right? And just say, mm-hmm. we're not doing that anymore. You know, even in some of our properties where you're paying $1,000 a night, I mean, that's a, that's a lot of money. So the big question, and that's not two or three years out, it's more immediate, but, but does the consumer continue to spend? That's the question we ask ourselves every day. We keep watching the data to say, is there a slowdown? Is there a slowdown? We haven't seen it yet. I think the U.S. will have a softer summer season than it did last year because I think a lot of Americans are going to be traveling abroad this summer to Europe and, and elsewhere who would be coming to our property in Hawaii or you know some of these other markets. So, so we're watching that. But it's all about consumer confidence. What is the Fed going to do? Is it pause, skip, stop? We, we don't know, right? And, and so we're trying to figure all of that. But all of that plays into the consumer's mind when we all look at our brokerage accounts and we're down 20, 30%, we feel less liquid, but we're quick to forget that we're up like 50 or 60%. So net net, we're still ahead, but all of this sort of plays into the consumer psyche and how they spend. So, you know, that that's what we watch right now. But on, as I said, on the good news side, we're not going to see much new supply. So that's good for those of us that have existing assets. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, Sean, earlier in our conversation, you, you, talked about your team. Um, and I think the term you use, you, it was a build it and they will come kind of the field of dreams kind of no- notion with your respect to your team and your people that you have. And, and people are you know, one of the most important components of a real estate uh, team because they may, they really help the, the clients and help you make good decisions. Are there, how did you build that team? Are there any aspects in terms of how you staffed it or the way you crafted roles that were particularly unique, you think, uh, that led you to the, the success that Trinity's having today? Yeah, so I've I've always been fortunate to have people in my life who've been tremendous mentors. And when we made the conscious decision about 13 years ago, when I moved back to Hawaii, we were very invested in Japan and commercial real estate. And I really wanted to focus on hospitality. So we spent the next few years divesting our Japanese portfolio. And then there's a gentleman by the name of Lee Nybard who had been our partner at Apollo Real Estate, and then he ran Area Property Partners. 
And I went to him for advice and I said, look, we've got this great little team of eight people. I want to invest in hospitality. You know, do you have any suggestions? And ultimately he agreed to become my partner. So he joined me in 2016. One of my close friends, Greg Dickens, who's on the asset management side, probably the best in the industry. I'd been trying to convince him for years to join us. And he ultimately agreed in 2016. And then Ryan Don, who's my fourth partner, has been with, we've worked together for 20 years. So it's the four of us. But what we focused on, Dan, was building a young, dynamic team and being true experts. So when I say handling everything in-house, we handle asset management, project management, accounting, all of that. And I believe the individuals that run each of those silos are best in class. A couple of other things is that, and excuse my language, but we truly have a no asshole policy. Like we, people just need to be good human beings, treat each other well, of course be killers and be hardworking and all of that other stuff, but being good people. And, um, and then the other mantra that we live by is only doing business with people we like in places we like. So we're very focused on who our equity partners are, our lenders, the markets that we invest in, etc. And then we wanted to be brand friendly. So most times, you know, you buy a hotel and the brand and the operator is looking at you saying, oh, you're trying to figure out how to terminate my contract and bring in another brand or take it independent. We've had the opposite relationship with them. Of course, we need to maintain, you know, the, the right amount of tension so that, you know, everybody's on track. But, but we're only as successful as the brands, and the brands are only as successful as their owners, and it's, it's a very symbiotic relationship. But the team specifically, we've built it out in, in Honolulu and, and Beverly Hills. We're constantly looking for young, dynamic people. Narissa, who I introduced you to as an intern with us this summer, I'd love nothing more than for Narissa to join us when she graduates from Cornell. And whether she comes straight from Cornell or wants to go somewhere in between, that's fine too. But it's all about the people at the end of the day. I mean, myself and my three partners, we're honestly nothing without the team that is doing the real work on a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah, I have to say, I've, I preach many of the same things you just talked about at Cobalt Banker Commercial, the expertise, the, the importance of not just having a team, but relying on the relative skills they bring to the table, right? It's, it's, well, there, are, there are organizations where you have the team, but then they don't necessarily listen to those experts that they brought in and fantastic people. So it's really important not just to have a team, but have the leadership qualities that allow you to say, hey, you know, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe your idea is better than mine, and that's okay, right? So it sounds like you have built a great team, and it's helped be a great part of your success because, as you said, and I often say is in the commercial real estate industry, people are our service, right? We are – obviously, we have, you have assets in your case. We have, we have uh, transactions to facilitate, but the people provide those services, and it's really important to have, to have great people, great people on the team, so – Kudos to you for being able to build that and, and attract and retain them in today's market too. Maybe it's because they have some great hotels to go to to relax at. I don't know. That could that could be it as well. That could be a side. Perk. Well, I know they're great because people keep trying to poach them. So we've got to keep ah, making sure that this is a place gotcha. where, where they want to be. Yeah. Let me just before we uh, just kind of go into some concluding comments. Let me just ask you. You mentioned you were looking at a hotel, a property to acquire in Tennessee. Are there other markets that you see as particularly attractive today? Um, maybe that you aren't in already, or maybe you want to get deeper in today? I would love to do a lot more in Texas. You know, we, okay. we, we only have one asset. We bought the Four Seasons in Las Colinas in Dallas. We're looking at other assets in Austin and in, in Houston, et cetera. I think that's a market that's really exciting. Florida is a market where we have three assets now. We'd love to do more in Florida, and we are going to do more there. You know, 
the contrarian play is what's happening in San Francisco. Do these assets get cheap enough that uh -huh. it makes sense to have a contrarian view? We're not quite there yet, but it's something we think about. And we're very happy with our acquisition of the Hyatt Regency in Greenwich, uh, Connecticut. As I mentioned, Tennessee is a market we should be in, but we're constantly, constantly looking. Excellent. Well, if there's a listener out there who has an opportunity, I suppose they'll they'll see how to get in touch with you. It sounds like Greenwich is a stretch, right? That's not a smile state per se, but it met other criteria. Is that correct? It's interesting. So we have a tremendous relationship with Hyatt and that we bought the Hyatt Regency in Indian Wells in the Palm Desert from Hyatt. Mm -hmm. And then Hyatt owned the Hyatt Regency in Greenwich. But again, it's, it's, it's not in the smile state, but with this work from home phenomenon and knowing the affluence and the wealth in that Greenwich and surrounding market. There aren't really many hotels, a lot of them closed over the years. So this is one of the only group hotels that's very well located and we can bring our value add expertise and renovation dollars and and turn the asset around in partnership with Hyatt. We just thought it was a very exciting opportunity. Excellent, excellent. Sean, before I draw some conclusion, anything else you'd like to share with the audience uh, about uh, your industry, your business, your outlook? As you can tell, Dan, I'm, I'm very optimistic by nature. I know we've got headwinds out there with interest rates and war in Ukraine and all that other stuff. But, you know, you think about it, as a people, we've been through worse and we always come out the other side. So I, I, I love the real estate industry. I love the hospitality real estate industry. It's dynamic. It's people driven. And we're just going to keep doing what we're doing. Okay, well, that's great. I guess when you have a winning formula, why not uh, double down on it, right? And uh, But it also sounds like you're innovating. You're constantly thinking of new new services to provide, new pro types of properties, maybe stretching what your comfort zone is. And that brings with it uh, new opportunities for you as well. So, Sean, I really appreciate you being here today. I think there's like three things I heard today. So I think you just, uh, I think we just in the last several minutes touched on a couple of them. One is the importance of building a great team. I think uh, while we brought that later in the podcast, I think that was something that really struck me because I know that is so important to almost any industry out there, but particularly in the commercial real estate space. Uh, two, I think you just also echoed on something else that I think allowed is is you know focus on the positive, right? There, we are going through a, a cycle in commercial real estate right now. There are assets that are upside down. There are ones that are going back to their lenders. That happens, as I said, it's unfortunate, and there are winners and losers, but there. Are, but let's also be positive, right? It's not to, to denigrate the entire commercial real estate sector, right? There are opportunities, there are properties that are performing like the hospitality properties that you have. Um, so I think it's important not to get caught up in, in the headlines, so to speak, um, but really focus on where the positive aspects are. Um, and I think it's, it's also the ability to innovate. The other thing I heard, right? Looking at a property, I suppose a value-add investor like yourself thinks about this frequently. Uh, but you have to be able to look at a property and then see what the opportunity is and listen to the marketplace, right? Uh, understand where the market is going. And, and I suppose be willed and try things. I imagine not everything you've tried has worked out, but you have to be willing to, right? You're smiling and no one can see it on the podcast, but it's true, right? You have to be willing to try a new restaurant concept or spa concept or cabana or pool or pickleball, as you said. You know that. Who knows how long that phase will last, but it's certainly popular today. And I think the fact that you're leaning into it is really awesome. So that's great, Sean. That was some great takeaways for our audience. Sean, thank you very much for being our guest today on the CRE with CBC Worldwide podcast. It's been a pleasure speaking with you, learning and deeping dive into the hospitality commercial real estate sector. It's great to hear that you're so positive on, on so many aspects of the sector. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a true honor talking to you. 
Thank you for joining us today on the CRE with CBC Worldwide podcast. You've been a great audience, and I've really enjoyed the conversation with Sean Hare of Trinity Investments. Feel free to subscribe and like our podcast on your favorite podcast app. Also, you can follow us on social media. We look forward to having you again as a guest on CRE with CBC Worldwide. Thank you.